Miracy. For them, it's starting their life over. They had to leave the cars, house, apartment, furniture, clothes. They had a suitcase and they had to move. We see a lot of people like, it's your problem. And we really looked from it. It's not just their problem. It's our problem. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarify their priorities, energize their organizations, and build cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by blending the art and science of leading with intention. I talk with top business leaders who exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the influence they have comes with an equal measure of responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy working environment for their employees. We learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey and apply it to ours. My guest today is Igor Selitsky. Igor is the founder and CEO of Cloud Linux, a global tech company that's on a mission to make Linux secure, stable, and profitable. Besides serving a unique niche, Cloud Linux has a unique culture. All 250 or more employees are fully remote and have been since 2014. And despite working remotely, they describe their culture as flexible, friendly, transparent, and open-minded. I think we could all enjoy a culture like that. Igor and I met in the spring of 2019 when he was looking for a coach. When he introduced himself to me, he was blunt about what he wanted to accomplish through coaching. He told me that his team members were afraid of him and he wanted to change his behavior so that they would no longer be afraid. Igor's one of the bravest executives I've worked with in how he confronted his own leadership difficulties head on. As you listen to our conversation, listen for how Igor's courageous self-examination led to huge improvements in how he leads, how the company is run, and ultimately to valuable success metrics, both business and personal. Listen also for how Cloud Linux's cultural principles lead to their culture becoming self-perpetuating because of how it attracts new employees. Welcome to the show, Igor. Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you so much for coming and joining us to talk. Can you start, Igor, by telling our listeners just a little bit about Cloud Linux, maybe what the company does, and uh, how it's grown over the last few years? Of course. So we are a business-to-business company. We're focusing on Linux and everything around Linux, which basically means we have a very highly qualified staff of developers, sysadmins, and people around it. It presents some challenges because it's hard to acquire such stuff. And tell us a little bit about how the company has grown over the last few years. We've been growing really, really well. So we've been growing to the tune of 50 to 70% a year. Profitable. It's been amazing journey for the past, uh, especially past three, four years. That's really exciting. What do you think has been, been feeding into that growth? 
What we do is clearly in demand. So the better we do it, the more we can sell. The more we can sell, the more we can do. And it's a self-perpetuating loop that as long as we can deliver innovative solutions in this industry, we can continue growing. And as long as we can attract and keep high-quality individuals, high-quality people in the company, we can continue growing. So it's two sides. We need, we need the right people and we need to continue to innovate, which at the end might be one side. We just need to continue getting the right people. Oh, that's excellent. So, and that's a good segue. Can you talk a little bit about the culture at Cloud Linux? I'm going to just read for everybody something that I saw on the website recently that says Cloud Linux has an open management style to avoid unnecessary bureaucracy and excessive control, which allows each person to fully realize our ideas and ambitions while comfortably combining work with our usual lifestyles. So, I'd love to hear about the culture. And how you think that helps you attract and retain these high quality folks that help you deliver such great service and value to your outside customers? So it took us some time to build what we have. Uh, and we didn't come up with it ourselves. We went and looked what the best companies do. We looked at Netflix, we looked at GitLab. Uh, I really enjoyed the book from um, Dell. Actually, I don't remember the name. The Principles book. Sorry, I'm terrible with names. Is that Ray Dalio's book? Yes, exactly. Really enjoyed the book. We came up with our own principles. But there is a few things that we are very much focusing on. So number one is that we want to do the right thing. It was very simple for us to figure out that, like, if you don't start there, nothing else will work. But beyond that, um, we're going into a few things that I think is very well, maybe not unique to us, but very much unusual for most companies. We're trying to be as transparent as we possibly can within the company. So everything we're doing, everything anyone is doing, by default should be accessible to everyone else. We try to make sure that all the information is as accessible to everyone as possible. Second thing that we did was we basically said, that we want all the decisions to be made on the lowest level possible. So we want people in the trenches making the decisions. We don't want them to ask their management if they can or cannot make the decision. And um, we try to explain to them what the company as a whole is trying to achieve. But basically, if they make the wrong decision, so be it. That's how it is. The only thing we ask is to be informed. Like if people make decisions, they have to inform us about it. I would say that the... Two biggest things that I found different than how we operated, for example, three, four years ago, is being completely transparent, letting people make their own errors. And that actually involves training people not to be afraid of making errors. Can you maybe, Igor, tell us, give us a story or an example of how that change in, in this more open management style affected how the work goes, how employees feel about the work or how well they can do the work or whatever you've noticed. So from my perspective, as a CEO, as I'm still responsible for driving the company forward, the main change is that we are much faster at delivering things. And it's not how it was. Like it takes some time for everyone or for majority of people to adapt to the style. But the end result is that things are handled significantly faster. For two reasons, people have uh, the information and people don't have to ask. They are not asking permissions, so things are going much smoother. 
also means that I have to do less. I have to be less involved in day to day, which opens me up to more strategic thinking, to more future thinking. So from my perspective, it's terrific. I know that some people like it. I know that some people do like not going for the decision. I know that it also forced us to better explain why are we doing it all? Like what's the end goal? What are we trying to achieve? And that makes people's jobs more purposeful and people are clearly enjoying that. I see people significantly more motivated. People who are making their own decisions, they're significantly more motivated in doing what they're doing. So one of the things we also try to do in the companies to make sure that people don't overwork. It's almost never that we have overtimes or you have to stay weekends, etc. We we never ask for that. But I know that we are getting into the situation where people are overworked exactly because they're so motivated. So we kind of have a the opposite of what many companies have. We ask people to take vacation, we monitor that they don't burn out. It's a real problem once you get people motivated. It's a problem once they're motivated. Yes. <laughs> That's a very funny thing for a CEO to say, but I appreciate really the message underneath what you're saying, which is you've opened the company up and learned or decided that if you put more trust in your employees, they can do more of the decision making. And that the side benefit or maybe the main benefit is that they really do love what they're doing and they uh, work hard because they love it. It's definitely the case, but there is more to that. It took me some time to realize that they are spending months dealing with this. They can make better decisions than I can. I just don't have as much information and as much time to make as good of a decision. So in many cases, after we let people to make their own decisions and we went back and to analyze, is it a good decision? Is it a bad decision? we can clearly see that decisions are at a higher caliber and level. If it would be the same way as before, where I'm from the top, having this small sliver of information and small amount of time trying to make this decision. That's great. I'd love to hear, if you can, what does this, um, what does this look like in practice? You, you're talking about how do we make sure employees take vacation? This, like you said, is, it's not a typical problem for companies. What do you end up doing with folks to help them balance in that way? Well, so first of all, we have a rule that if they don't use up the vacation, it's gone. So we're kind of forcefully telling them you have to take vacation. So no we rolling over. No rolling over. We started to do some rolling over for now for people who were affected by COVID. And now because we have some people who had to relocate because of the war in Ukraine. So we had to for people affected make provisions. But as soon as that's over, we're going back. We also make sure that managers know to look out for signs of uh, burnout, people complaining that they're tired, seeing that the performance of people are degrading, watching specifically for those signs. And we're asking people to take day offs if we see that's what's going on. I was really interested. You said that it takes some training to get people comfortable with making decisions because they're afraid. And I wonder if you could talk about how are you training them and uh, what do you think they're afraid of? <laughs> so we're training them badly. I'll be honest. We don't <laughs> have a systematic way to train them. So most of it is a dialogue, but quite often uh, what happens, and I would say that's the number one 
way we are training them that when people come to a manager, to me, to whatever, uh, with the question, what should I do? We ask them, what do you think? And what happens next is that people try to wiggle out. They really try not to say what they think. They really try not to say because we're going to tell them, okay, go do it. And then we start asking questions. Okay, so you cannot decide what to think, but what prevents you from deciding? What are the things that you're afraid of? What is the worst thing that can happen? And it kind of gives people ability to talk about their fears because they, they, they really have good fears. I mean, there is few fears that, oh, what if we screw up uh, the customer? Well, we ask, okay, what's going to be next step? How are we contingent with that? And they're like, okay, yeah, we have safety. It's not going to be a big deal. Uh, but what if we're going to lose money? I mean, once again, we're losing money left and right. There is bunch of decisions that we're making where we're losing money. We cannot, in the best possible way, make sure that we're not going to lose money on some of our decisions. So you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. What's the difference? Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be demoted? Well, good thing is that we never fired anyone for doing something that caused us to lose money, lose customer, etc. So we have a good track record where we're not going into blaming people that it's your fault. And overall, and that also requires some training. When my managers come to me and say, well, we had this problem and that person did it, I'm kind of always tell them that it's really not important uh, who did it. What's important, what caused the situation to happen, not who, but what. And what are we going to do to resolve the situation? And part of it is that we are not interested to know who is the owner of the fault, but we're very interested to know who is the owner of the success. So if we have the success story, we should celebrate it. If we have the owner of the fault, it's really not as important or not important at all. Thank you. Thank you. I imagine this kind of surprises some people when you first tell them about it. Yes. It's a big deviation from what majority of people who join the organization see. A lot of people don't know what to do with it for some time, but I mean, it's clearly working out good for us. I'm not saying it's going to work for everyone, but it's working out well for us. And uh, I mean, we have very good, like people stick with the company. So I guess the culture fits a lot of people. It doesn't fit people, for example, who don't want to make decisions, who don't show initiative. It doesn't fit everyone, but we don't want those people. So it's a win-win for us anyway. That's great. And what I hear you describing in the way that you're doing this training, so to speak, is you're teaching your managers how to coach people when they come forward with a concern. Instead of telling them what to do, they're asking them, what do you think you should do? And then what? And then what? And I think that is a, a pretty... I mean, I don't know if everyone would call that training, but I think it is very much on-the-job, hands-on training. So one interesting thing that our listeners might like to learn more about is Cloud Linux has always been fully remote, right? Almost. So we were... Or we we used to call it virtual, right? (laughs) Yeah. Until 2014, we had an office where half of the population, like half of the company was about 20 people, maybe 15, and then another 15 people fully remote. And that didn't work well because there was this silo of one office and everyone else and people didn't mesh well. So we had to go into, we don't have any offices. Everyone is remote, shut down the office completely. And after that, remote work started to work wonders for us. 
So for a lot of listeners who are only recently experiencing what it's like to have a remote workforce, or in their case, sometimes hybrid, I think a lot of people are concerned about how do you manage people when you don't ever see them, except on a little screen. So I'm wondering, what have you learned about how to, how to do that? Regarding management of people, I think our reliance on being present in the office is clutch for us not being able to see the results. So we're not managing people for the sake of managing people. We're managing people to get the results. And quite often I hear from my friends who are also managers that, well, I cannot manage people when they're remote because I don't know if they're working or not. It's very simple to understand. Well, if it means that in the office, you cannot see the results, you can see that the bodies are there, but you don't know if they're working or not. You cannot analyze who is working more, who is working less. It's all based on some superficial knowledge. So it's still a big problem for us. How do we analyze who is more performant, who is less performant? Uh, But that's our struggle. It's work that manager has to do, but we don't manage from the perspective, did you work eight hours a day or did you, have you been here today? No, we're actually focusing on results being delivered. We're very much uh, OKR focused culture. We have uh, our objectives, we have key results. It propagates across uh, all the teams. We don't have individual level, but we have team level OKRs. And this alignment lets us see the progress of the teams in a quarter to quarter basis. But more importantly, it's an opening for a dialogue between manager and people within the team. What was done to move us towards the objectives? So I think one of the key things is to focus on objectives, focus on delivering of the objectives instead of focusing on number of hours or lines of code uh, that individual person delivers. So can we, uh, let's dig a little deeper into you as a leader. So I would love to start with, how do you describe your your leadership approach? Wow, you caught me by surprise. (laughs) (laughs) You can talk about it in guiding principles, or you can talk about how personal values have guided the way you lead, anything that you think is descriptive of how you lead and why. Yeah, there is two sides of it. So first of all, it took me some time, and it's very arrogant of me, but it took me some time to realize that I don't have the best answers. So today I assume that my people are smarter than me, that they're here for the reason, to be smarter than me, and I should rely on them to make their decisions. Uh, second part is that I really want to be proud about what I do, which translates into being proud of what my people do, and it cannot be about profits. So I am proud about my company, I'm proud about my team, I'm proud about my people, and everything we did and doing and the way we're forming our decisions are all about this making sure that I can be proud and I don't have to feel shame. It's a kind of a big, big thing for me. And that's why we have this number one principle doing the right thing. So we will do a gut check to make sure that we're doing the right thing, even if it means losing a lot of money. And we will go for let's lose a lot of money, but make sure that we're on the right track. We don't have to be ashamed about a particular decision. So can you tell us a story or give us an example of a decision like that? So we have a lot of people in Russia and Ukraine. 
and we had to relocate a lot of people. From what I know, we had some of the best relocation package in the industry, and it's costing us a lot, like really a lot. We know that we could have done better from the perspective of spending less money, but we just, I, I don't want to talk to my people and hear about all the, well, they're still having hardship, but I wanted to alleviate this hardship. And it's an easy example. Like, I understand it's an easy example, but we just paid money to make life of our people better. So you move people from somewhere to somewhere safer, basically. Yes, and we gave them enough money so that they can start their life over because for many of them, it's starting their life over. They had to leave the cars, the house, apartment, furniture, clothes. They like had a suitcase and they had to move. So it's kind of strange, but we see a lot of people like it's your problem. And we really looked from it. It's not just their problem. It's our problem. To me, that's a very deep example of what I would describe as humanistic leadership, meaning you know that the people that are working in your company are full people. They're not just a means of production, if you will. Yeah, that's another thing that's important for me. Probably one of the major points of pride for me is that some of the people, my company, that's their longest stint uh, that they ever had. They're staying in my company longer than they ever stayed everywhere, anywhere. And overall, people stick with the company for a long time. We don't have the same turnover as many other companies. Actually, we do and we don't. We have a lot of turnover for new people and we need to improve our interviewing for that. But uh, once people settle in like six months, a year, they tend to stay for three years, five years, like long, long, long time. And we want to keep it that way. I think it's important from the company standpoint because it's very hard to find smart people. It's very hard to find smart people with the right ethics and with the right initiative. So as long as we can keep it, I'm happy. But I'm glad that people like staying. Yeah, I'm sure that's very rewarding for you. So we met first in the spring of 2019, and your leadership was a lot different back then. And I wonder if you're willing to tell our listeners a little bit about what your leadership was like back then, and then maybe a little bit about your journey. You know, what did you need to learn about yourself and other people that helped you go from where you were to where you are now? I always stood out as a very obnoxious person. And I kind of thought it was okay because, hey, I'm smart. I can do that. First of all, it took me some time to realize I'm not that smart. Uh, second, uh, I realized that it's really not working well for having an effective company. But the point, I think the turning point for me was when I realized that I want people to tell me what they think and they're afraid. They were honest to God, afraid to tell me things. And I didn't fire people. Like even back then I was smart enough to realize that I shouldn't fire people for making mistakes. But I was screaming at people. I was telling them that their ideas don't smell that good. So I, I had a lot of traits that weren't conductive to what I was trying to do. And the thing is that I wasn't good enough to realize what's going on. So that was my problem. That's why I came to you in the first place. I saw that I'm trying to achieve something, but I don't know how to achieve it. How do I get uh, from people not being afraid of me 
or how do I get from, hey, I'm screaming at the person because what I'm, for whatever reason, to not screaming at the person. I mean, I'm, I was old enough to realize it's not a good behavior to scream at someone. I just didn't know how to stop myself screaming. And it was very educational for me to learn how do you not scream at the person? How do you make their decisions and their opinions and their ideas welcome? Even though I might still think that their ideas are subpar, I still want to welcome their ideas because how do I know that they are subpar? I need to at least give them opportunity to defend their ideas and to explain their ideas. And if they're afraid of me, they're not going to do that. They're just going to shut down. So that's, that's what was my main concern. And thank you very much for helping me with that. So what was prompting the screaming? Do you remember what the, what was going on for you that you were so, was it impatience yes. or what was it? Yes. So there was two things. One was that I just couldn't believe they're so dumb. And it was stupid of me. It was stupid of me to think that way about people. Uh, so I thought people are not putting in enough effort. I thought people were like doing the wrong thing. What I didn't realize that we were working from the wrong set of assumptions. They had completely different assumptions that I had. And as a result, they had very wrong ideas or the ideas that I didn't appreciate because I didn't have the same assumptions. Sometimes my assumptions were better. Sometimes their assumptions were better. And sometimes I didn't understand what they're trying to achieve in the... So that was one reason. And the second reason was for me that uh, as the time for the meeting would run out, I would feel impatient. And that would prompt me to interrupt and start talking way too loud and tell people that, hey, why are we talking about that at all? So that was another case which uh, prompted a lot of my bad behavior. So how, what would you, like, if somebody out listening here wants to know, how did you stop? What did you learn about how to shift that behavior? Well, there was two things. One is to realize what's causing it. That was the crucial thing. But then there was some other things that you told me that I don't remember. I remember to do gut check, like uh, if I feel something in my stomach that might be a symptom that I will start misbehaving and I should pay attention to that. I don't remember all the techniques that you told me because today they are so natural to me. But it was two things. It was realize what's causing it and then have some techniques, triggers, whatever to help adjust once I know what it's about. Because what happens is, and it's a big problem, that even once I realize what's causing it, it takes some brain power, focus brain power to realize it at the right moment. And the conversation I have, they're pretty sophisticated. They're like, oh, my brain power is on the topic. So how do I stop myself? How do I not react? I don't remember what you told me, but it worked. I don't remember what I told you either, but now that you're doing it as a part of your daily habit, do you it's notice natural. anything? Yeah. What is it that's it, different? Do you have any idea? So somehow it's natural for me to stop and instead of screaming, start to ask questions. So mm. I might ask people a question like, what are you basing this decision on? Or what are you trying to achieve? Those two, probably my favorite questions. I'm trying to get where people are coming from and where people are going. That's the two things. And second one, when I feel uncomfortable, I check the time and I know that if the time is running out, I need to schedule next meeting and stop being worried that, hey, we don't have the time to discuss. That sounds so practical. Sounds like such a pragmatic answer. So I'm glad that that's a practice that you find helpful. 
So thinking about this leadership journey, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine for a lot of people that in only three years, you could go from a hundred person company to over 250 people and from screaming and people being afraid of you to this culture where decision-making is now pushed down into the organization at the lowest appropriate level. And you've got this longevity of employees. So it couldn't have just been you. What else do you think happened in the company to spread that way of being? I think we always had good people in the company. I think the people's heart was in the right place. And as soon as I've changed, uh, the company blossomed. We stopped losing some of the best people. It's much easier to employ new people because people in the company are talking about the company with a light in their eyes. So we can attract really good people as well. But I do believe that shifting company culture was critical because at some point the company just couldn't continue. It just didn't have ability to execute on the next level to continue growing because I was the bottleneck. I think it takes a lot of courage to admit that you were the bottleneck. It takes a lot of courage to admit that you were arrogant and thinking you were smarter than everybody else. It takes a lot of courage to even have this conversation. And I'm just wondering, where does that come from in you? Where did that courage come from? Well, I want to say thanks to my mom because uh, she always had an unconditional love for me. And I think what that gave me is very high level of self-esteem. Like, I'm not afraid to admit my mistakes. And yeah, I think it comes from the family, at least in my case. I guess I'm lucky. (laughs) That's very nice. As a mom, I think, wow, if she could hear that, I bet she'd be very proud. I'll send it to her. I'll make sure. I think (laughs) she doesn't get enough praise from me, and she should. But yeah, I, I do have a terrific mom. Oh, that's really cool. So anything else when you think about like the behaviors that you've changed or some of the challenges that you faced along the way, anything else that comes to mind about how you made this big shift? Being open was also a problem. I mean, there is so much misconception in the world about the need to protect your own turf and protect the information. And what if someone steals your information and runs with it? And what if it leaks? So we've been doing it for at least two and a half years. Can some leaks uh, hurt us? Definitely. Did we have some leaks? I honestly don't know. The reality is that the benefits we got from being as open and as transparent as possible are way beyond any, anything we lost so far. And to be honest, like we do have, we do conduct risk analysis. We don't see big risks that competitors will take our idea and implement it better than us. I mean, if they can implement it better than us, we're doing something wrong already. So yeah, I think that that's very crucial to be focused on being transparent because it makes it much easier to explain your culture to everyone within the company. So you said it's well worth the costs of investing in this culture. And what would you say, like, how would you quantify that to somebody who's wondering, like, well, what kind of benefits am I going to get? How do we quantify the value of being more human in how we work with people? No, I think uh, nothing changed from the perspective of how do we run the company as, uh, how do we run the company? How do we quantify success of the company? I mean, it's, it's revenues, it's profits. There is, like, you can still go back to that and say, okay, are we 
doing better than before? Are we able to gain new revenues, gain run things more efficiently? And if we don't, it might not be the best way. At least for me, it all goes back to this, are we more profitable? And I believe that, yes, we're more profitable, we're more, we're generating more revenue because of what we're doing, because we're putting employees first, because we're uh, doing things transparently. Uh, I mean, I understand we lost some money on relocation. I think it means that these people will stick for, with us for a longer time. So over the period of one year, it's a wrong decision. Over the period of uh, five, 10 years, it's definitely a right decision. Anytime we go back, what is the right uh, thing to do? As long as we stop focusing on short terms, profit and revenue and think about long-term, it's all aligned. That's great. So I have two questions. One, what do you think your learning edge is today as a leader? What are you focused on improving today? I mean, for me, I have a problem of how do I know, how do I select people initially? Because I have this problem of, I want to trust people. I do believe people. And once people are in it's typically works, but when I'm interviewing people, it's kind of hit and miss for me. And I don't know if I can do it, but that's a focus for me today. But no, that's not the focus for me today. I mean, I would still go back to this training thing because that's the focus for me to how do I train my managers or how do I become a better coach to people who I work direct with, so they become a better coach to their people. It all goes back to how do we grow our people, because it really doesn't matter what else I can do. We have enough people in the company today that if I can improve uh, how people work just a little bit, uh, it will give a big benefit to the company. Mm, That's beautiful. So in wrapping up, I think I always like to give people a chance to say, You know, what's one piece of advice that you would offer to other business leaders if they want to focus on building workplaces that, like the title of this podcast, to lead as human, if they want to lead more fully human, what should they do? Not to be afraid. I think a lot of what we're not doing is because we're afraid that something else will break or something else will not work. Just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Find a way to do it. It's doable. It's going to happen. That seems like good advice, but I guess if I were one of those people that was feeling afraid, I'd be like, but how do I do that? So what would you tell me? Well, so let's go back to what we talked before, when people need to make a decision. Quite often, they're not making a decision because they are afraid to make decision. And the technique that I'm often using, I'm asking people, what exactly are you afraid of? Like, what is the worst thing that can happen? What is the second worst thing that can happen? Okay, let's come up with a third. And what people often realize that the worst things, they're not that bad. They're actually not scary at all. And it helps people to move forward with, uh, yeah, why not? Why not try it? So that's what we would advise then to these other business executives. Inquire, what are you afraid of? Try to figure out what the worst case would be. Ask yourself what you would do if that happened and see if that brings the fear level down. Is that kind of the approach? Yes. Yes, that's exactly the approach we're using. Excellent. And just, you know, because the title of the podcast is To Lead as Human, what does that mean to you? What does it mean to lead as human? You know, when I was in college, one friend told me, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. So I think being in the positions we are as leaders, 
it's very important to realize that, yes, it's more important to be nice. And it will provide amazing results as long as we can get people aligned with us and uh, being at our company, not because of the salary, but because they want to be here. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today, Igor. I can hardly tell you what a joy it is. And uh, it's great to uh, hear about your successes. And I, I hope you're feeling proud of what you've been able to build. I am proud. Thank you very much. And thank you for everything you did for me. And it was a joy to be here. Please keep listening as I share some next steps you might take on your own leadership journey. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com, and you can book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. Igor's openness let us peek behind the curtain of his leadership and understand his journey from self-criticism through self-awareness to changes in his day-to-day self-management. It took time and care, an intentional practice over several months, until Igor felt his new habits taking root. And these changes resulted in great success. Business successes in the 50% plus annual revenue growth year over year for the last three to four years and personal success for Igor in that he now feels pride, not shame, in what the company does, how he leads it, and how the teams work together. One thing that surprised Igor was that he would have to help his people learn not to be afraid of making mistakes for the changes he wanted to see to take root. To help them get there, he had to coach them to lessen those fears so their inner wisdom and capabilities could come forth. He's since seen how attracting the right kinds of people created a self-perpetuating culture of innovation, transparency, and trust. If you'd like to build this kind of trust and engagement in your organization, here's a way you can start. First, notice when you feel impatient or judgmental about a team member or colleague. Take some time to reflect on what you're impatient about and why. What you wish would be different and what results you think could be generated if that were different. Second, consider what choices you have for how you can react. If you're doing this in retrospect, think about how you could have reacted differently. Think about it from your own point of view, from the point of view of the other person, and maybe from the point of view of an observer who doesn't know either of you. See what else you can come up with. Third, see if you can remember what the initial trigger of your impatience or judgment was. That way, the next time you notice yourself feeling that same emotion, you can make a more intentional choice on how you react. For example, if you usually cut people off when you hear them say something you think is incorrect, try instead asking, how did they come to that conclusion? What was their thinking process? By noticing your emotions and what triggers you and expanding the choices you have in that moment, 
you will be a more intentional leader, taking care with the impact your words and actions have on your team members. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Jeff Govertson assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer, and post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a starred review and make sure to tell your colleagues about us. It really helps us spread the word. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on To Lead is Human. Miracy. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference. Make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it, to me, really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like, for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts, no shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and you're 
comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.